everybody, welcome to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, my monthly interview show where I sit down with the best, brightest, most interesting people in the video game industry. My guest this month is none other than the original Chief Xbox Officer himself, Robbie Bach. Thanks for coming. It's good to be here, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So, there's a lot to unpack with you. You've written a book. You're not here for your health. You've written a book. <laughs> it's called Xbox Revisited. I'm going to show it to both cameras. Right. Uh, and the book is a, uh, it's sort of a two two-part book effectively. It covers the early days at Xbox, the original Xbox, a lot of 360 stuff, the sort of game plan for 360, which turned out to be such a successful console. And then it gets into your, your sort of post-retirement passion, uh, which, is, which is adhering to the civic call of duty that, that you have heard. And, and this newfound life, you're, a lot of stuff with the Boys and Girls Club, et cetera, et cetera. But let's start back at the beginning. Sure. You managed to retire at 49 after <laughs> right. being at Microsoft for 22 years. Right. But in that time, you know, you did a lot at the company. But of course, the most the reason you're here, the reason that uh, IGN fans care, sure. is the Xbox. Right. How does a guy such as yourself, who who you don't have a background in video games, you're very right. much you have a, a business background. Right. How do you end up with the the keys to the Xbox in your hands? Well, it's a little bit of one of those things of serendipity, right? We're at an executive staff retreat. A guy who worked for me, Rick Thompson who ran Microsoft's hardware business at the time, mice and keyboards, and yeah. Barney, if you remember Interactive Barney. <laughs> so, but Rick was a great guy, and he, had, he raised this question, um, should Microsoft do a game console? And so we had a uh, small breakout session that Bill Gates came and attended, and that led to about three or four months of investigation. Bill came back to, to Rick and to Steve Ballmer and said, hey, I think technically this is interesting. Do you guys think it can be a business? Steve asked Rick to do it. Rick was working for me, so I'm spending... 10% of my time on yeah. this. And Rick's full full out. For six months, he's doing an investigation, blah, blah, blah. In December, the project gets approved. And shortly thereafter, Rick decided he wanted to leave Microsoft. And so he went to a startup that he had helped fund. Uh, and suddenly, I became the head of Xbox. And whatever else I was doing went to somebody else. And I went from 10% to 100% Xbox. And uh, you know, it was very early in the project. There were probably 40 people on the team at that point. Yeah. And from there, uh, it became you know 10 years of of love and and passion. So you're uh, you cover in the book your your parents, very intellectual people. What what do they? How do they react when you tell when you tell them, hey, guess what? Uh, you know, I, I'm working myself, but now I'm I'm actually going to be running this video game business. Well, my my dad was an engineer, so at least at a technical level, he thought it was that was sort of cool. Yeah. And the family and my mom in particular just said, "Wow, it's an interesting business." And you know, this is where my passion is. Yeah. Is on the business side, and so when you explain to them that yes, it's cool, yes, it's this cutting edge form of entertainment and all those kinds of things, but then. When I was able to talk about, well, this is why I'm passionate about it, they got it. And they got behind it. And of course, for my son, you know, who was 13 at the time, this was the greatest thing that had ever <laughs> happened in life because well, he got all the beta products and he was playing Xbox. What kind of NDA do you have to sign your son to? With your own son, your own flesh and oh, blood look, at that I, point. I know plenty of stories about him. I have control <laughs> over the TV time, so I had, I had no problem with that. Uh, so the book covers, which by the way, uh, all proceeds from the book are going to charity. You're, right. you're, uh, you're not doing this to line your own pockets. Right. Uh, you were in New York on 9-11, right. on an Xbox tour. Right. Uh, you're gearing up for the launch of the original Xbox. You had flown in that morning. Right. And uh, you mentioned in the book that, that 
that 9-11 became a very transformative moment for you in your life. And, and in a real way, like in a sense that did, so did, because that's where you sort of had your civic awakening, right. as you've put it, that you're, you're now very involved with Boys and Girls Club and various uh, sort of other civic initiatives. Did, when 9-11 happens, do, do, you know, with all due respect to, to games, do, do video games just kind of seem dumb to you at that point? No, you know, it's really interesting. When I was growing up, I was a civic-minded uh, high schooler, which sounds a little geeky and weird, but that's the way that's it was. That's all of us. <laughs> that's, all... What, that's the way I was. And, you know, I thought I wanted to be a U.S. senator. Yeah. I went to undergraduate school, went into banking, went to business school, and found a love for business. And so the civic stuff just sort of went aside. Yeah. 9-11 brought that back to me. And, and I didn't even realize it at the time. You know, when, when you're in an experience like 9-11, you know, we were driving across the country. We were just trying to get home. I just want to see my wife and my kids. Yeah, nobody could fly home. For, for, the, the, nobody, for people that are young enough, flights were grounded for a week yeah. nationwide. Yeah. So, so you, you know, and, we could, and cell phones, look, 2001, cell phones weren't as ubiquitous as they are today. Right. And so communication was hard. I just want to get home to my family. But as I reflected on it, and as you started to think about it, it really made me say, hey, there's a calling here for me someplace. And when I retired from Microsoft, I actually started a new career. Yeah. And that new career was what I call civic engineering. But did, so was 9-11 the day that the, the did you... In, on some level, either consciously or subconsciously, began sort of, begin sort of planning your the next phase of your life right then? No, I don't think so. I think right at that moment, again, Xbox, um, as I describe in the book, was all engrossing. Yeah. And and frankly, in bad shape, right? I mean, yeah, this the run-up. The run-up to the first launch. The E3, E3 uh, Halo was, a, was running rough. Oh, and E3 was a disaster. By, there's only That's only one word to describe that, and it was a disaster on all fronts. And not because the team didn't work hard, but it just was bad. Um, we were leading up to a launch. We weren't sure the hardware was going to get done. The software was coming in hot. People were just starting to work on real dev kits, which is crazy. Yeah. And so that was sort of all engrossing. And once we got past that, we started to think about the future of the business. Um, then I had a little bit more time to step back and sort of evaluate my life. And it was about a year later where I said, I love Microsoft. I love Xbox. I'm going to keep doing this for a while. I want to play this out. But there's something else that I'm going to want to do. Yeah. And when that time comes, I'll be ready for it. So let's, let's one more bit of 9-11 here. Sure. Y you mentioned, you just touched on it, you, you ended up renting a car with, a, with a, a handful of people that you were there with from right. Microsoft. And you drove back across the country back to Seattle. Yeah. To get home. Uh, you stopped at, you mentioned you talk about a GameStop clerk that you befriended in the Dakotas <laughs> and, and kept in touch with. It's a great, it's a great story. We're, we are, um, there's four of us in the car. There's three people from Microsoft, including myself, and a guy from my church who happened to be in New York. We're driving across, and we stop at the uh, Mount Rushmore Mall in Rapid City, South Dakota, because we got to get food. So we had Chinese yeah. food. That was, a bad, that was a mistake. So Chinese food at Mount Rushmore Mall, do not recommend it. We got pillows at Target because we were going to drive through the night. Yeah, you, and then as we're coming out, it actually was called a software etcetera Back then, at the yeah, time, that's right. which then became EB, right. which then became Game GameStop. GameStop yeah. So the software etcetera clerk, named Derek Barnes, is in the store, and they have all the Xbox stuff up. This is about three months before we're shipping. And so we started chatting with him, and the guy knew a lot. He's, you know, he was talking about NFL fever. Who wants to forget <laughs> NFL fever? He was talking about Halo. He was talking about a couple other things. And so... I gave my business card. He sent me an email. We emailed for probably 
10, 12 years That's after great. That. He you know, went on went on to work in an IT department, had a family. Uh, presumably, Derek, if you're out there, contact me again. I'd love to catch <laughs> up with you. I think he's you know, really well, doing Well, your great. Microsoft address doesn't work anymore. Well, medicine, yeah, right? he can contact <laughs> me at bachfamilyatlive.com, or he can go to the website. Derek, if you, if you see this, give me a shout. Uh, so during that drive back, besides befriending Derek, uh, <laughs> I'm curious, did you have any kind of epiphanies, because that's a lot of time to think on yeah. a 53-hour drive. I presume you probably took turns or something, but right. do, do any sort of st strategic business strategy epiphanies occur to you at that, that time? Things that we can kind of look back on and go, oh, that idea to do that came from that drive home. No, but I think, I think one thing did come from that drive home. You know, I had just gone through this period, which I described in the book, where I tried to resign from Microsoft. Yeah. And yeah, I they was, wouldn't let you. And they wouldn't let me <laughs> nicely, so that was good. Um, and I, I sort of realized where things fit in the grand scheme of life, right? When the country's being attacked yeah. and you can't fly and you feel isolated from your family, you step back and you say, okay, what I do for a living is important. So I care about it and I'm going to do it well. But it's not worth having a crisis over. Life will go on. I will, you know, if we're successful, that's great. If we're not successful, I'll work hard to make it successful. But it gave me a little bit of peace. It gave me the ability yeah. to sort of get through launch, and it was perhaps the starting point for me figuring out how to reshape my next 10 years. It was effectively like, it was like therapy for you at that point. Then. It was like, like a, a therapeutic realization. It was, and it was the start of that. And then as I, as I talk in the book, I actually, we went to see some family coaches who helped my wife, and I really think about okay, work's important to you, you care, you're yeah. passionate about it, but you care about your family, how do you make those things work? Um, and so it really was the beginning of that healing process. It was uh, kind of cool. You talk a lot about Jay Allard in your book. Who, right. uh, Jay, if you're out there, please, come on. I've, been, <laughs> I've tried to find him, I can't find him, nobody can find him. He's, he's on a mountain in, in Oregon somewhere. Someplace, that's but right. Anyway, uh, he was of course a, he was effectively uh, your your co-pilot on yes. the on the Xbox Absolutely. adventure. Absolutely, uh, he of course was he was the more I guess public facing of the two of you. Typically, you know the the Xbox 360. Certainly in the gaming event. community. Certainly in the gaming community, right. he and Ed Freeze were the two public faces. And uh, it sounds like the two of you really complemented each other very very well. And by that, you know, you kind of each brought different strengths to the table. That's right. But it also sounded like you butted heads a lot. Well. So uh, Jay and I are both uh, very opinionated. We're very uh, stubborn. Um, and so, you know, he had opinions about stuff that I felt like I knew a lot about. Yeah. I had opinions about stuff that I know he knew a lot about. <laughs> and so there was always this yin and yang thing. And I think it was actually sort of uh, constructive confrontation, right? We'd, we'd butt head on, heads on things. And you know, I'd learn a little bit about the things I was supposed to be focusing on right. from him, and he'd learn a little bit from me. And so it ended up being quite productive, but it wasn't peaceful. And, uh, you know, sometimes you see partners who work together. I have a business partner now I work with, and we're very simpatico. We think a lot alike, and it's easy. Jay's and my relationship was never easy, but it was always hugely productive. Um, and you know, we managed to we managed to get along like a lot, a lot of like a lot of rock bands really right where you know you sure. got these and when they break up you go how could you break up it's a gravy train you guys managed to keep it together I mean what what ultimately what did Jay mean for your career at Microsoft Well I think uh, a couple of things first of all he brought such passion and vision around a concept and a idea you know for me as a business guy. 
I looked at problems as, okay, this is a business problem, I need to solve it, I need to sell it, I need to market it, whatever it is. Jay thought about it as a quest. For Jay, it was, there's a North Star and we're gonna take the team there. Yeah. And that to me was a different way of thinking about things and really changed the way I thought about um, approaching team management, leadership, and other types of things. The other thing that I, I learned from Jay, um, and I talk about this at great length in the book, is the huge power of simplicity. Uh, for all of his grand visions and, and, and um, paths that he wanted to take us on, Jay was an incredible thinker at, no, we just have to do these few things. Yeah. And if we do those few things, the rest will take care of itself. And that, to me, was a powerful lesson. Yeah, well, you're, uh, I foolishly didn't write it down, but, you, oh, here it is. Yeah, you, because your, your whole business plan, you, is, is like a three, you boil it down to a three-page thing, right? Yeah, we, had this, we had this epic off-site at a place called Salish Lodge. Um, Peter Moore, Jay, myself, uh, a few other people. Uh, and we basically were arguing about the future of Xbox and how we were going to tell the team what to do with Xbox 360. And this is 2002. Yeah. <laughs> so early on. And Jay really pushed the point. He said, we've got to be able to write it in three pages. If we can't write it in three pages, it's useless to the team. And so that's what we did. And from that came the 3P framework, purpose, principles, and priorities that I use for the book. It's what I yep. use in my nonprofit work. It's what I use in my civic in engineering work. And it's a powerful, simple framework for getting people to focus and to decide what's important and make sure that gets done. Uh, what's, what's Bill Gates like in quote-unquote real life? Because we, you know, we only ever see <laughs> the sort of the occasional on-stage Bill Gates, the now like humanitarian Bill Gates. Right. But, you know, I've had uh, some of your, your colleagues and other, other Microsoft folks on the show who've told some Bill Gates stories, and I guess, you know, he wasn't afraid of, uh, of the occasional four-letter word of getting fired up in a meeting, getting things done. What, what's, what's Bill Gates like? The, the thing I'll say about Bill is uh, he's intensely competitive. He and Steve, between the two of them, had so much competitive yeah. spirit in them. So... You know, when things happen in meetings and when he got... And you're talking about Bomber, not Jobs, although correct. it could apply to Jobs as well. I think it well. applies to all three of them, actually. <laughs> but yes, I was talking about Bomber. But when, when Bill was in a meeting and he was being demonstrative, it wasn't because he didn't like you. Um, it was because he cared. Yeah. It was because he, ca he wanted to win and because he wanted it to be right. And what I found is, um, you know, in big group meetings, that was hard to manage because he was you know, often right, most of the time right, yeah. and upset for good reason. And so you're trying to manage the team dynamics and work with Bill at the same time. It's not, not easy. And so I spent a lot of time with Bill in smaller groups where he was amazing. Um, just as competitive, just as fierce, just as demonstrative, but at a personal level, um, you know, even more effective. And, and I found... Um, you know, as an individual, when you get time to spend with him, he's, he's, he's really smart. He's actually quite funny. He has a great sense of humor. Like a, like, like off-color sense of no, humor? No, 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 like a... cut-with-a-knife-dry-wit <laughs> sense of humor. Um, he's, he's very, very funny, um, but competitive yeah. and, and wants to win. And, look, Xbox um, owes a lot uh, to the team and to Jay and other people, but Bill played his role. He played an important role in our success. So again, the book here is Xbox Revisited. Uh, get it at RobbieBach.com, B-A-C-H, Robbie Bach, and all the pro proceeds are going to charity on that. Uh, we'll get to the 360, which you just touched on, but sure. the original Xbox. Right. Uh, something of a ragtag project. If you go back and watch Podcast Unlocked 201 from last year, 
when Seamus Blackley, uh, Phil Spencer, and Peter Moore, Seamus tells a lot of good stories. <laughs> what, what's your fondest memory of the original Xbox? Uh, fondest, well, fondest memory is E3, I think it's 2003. Um, so Halo 2? Uh, no, it's actually EA on Xbox Live. That was big, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali on stage, yep. and it was also apropos to today's time when we had Donald Trump in a video doing our takeoff <laughs> on The Apprentice with Sony versus Microsoft. I forgot about that. That was a great, that was just a fun day, right? The vid, doing the video was crazy in New York. We, we yeah. flew to New York, we did it, Donald was there. He came and did it with us. It was Peter, uh, Jay, and I. We had a lot of fun doing it. Then we go to E3, Muhammad Ali backstage, uh, was incredible. Uh, you know, it was an uplifting moment for Xbox, right? We yeah. were starting to come out, and people were starting to say, hey, this thing has some traction. Yeah. And we were sort of past the doldrums. It was just personally a very gratifying and fun day. Yeah. Uh, you talk about Japan being <laughs> important to the Xbox effort, but obviously it never quite worked out uh, in Japan. Is there... In hindsight, is there anything you think you could have done differently to get uh, Xbox a, a strong foothold in Japan? Um, it's, a, it's a really good question. I've thought about it a lot. Uh, I don't, in the grand scheme of what we were doing, uh, the short answer is I don't think so. And that's not, a, that's not a statement about Japan or about us or about Sony right. or Nintendo. It's just a question of focus. And it's a question of where you have assets and where you don't have assets. And we had no assets in Japan. Right? We, didn't, we were building a team. Yep. It was a young team. became a very good team, but at the beginning, it struggled. Uh, we didn't have the relationships with da Japanese game developers. Um, Sony and Nintendo... We had Ninja Gaiden, but... We did. And I, a few isolated A few isolated here. ones, but even those wouldn't have been games that you would have said were... They were actually more popular in the West right. than they were in Japan. That's true. And, and so, we, you know, deeply into the Japanese gaming culture, we just weren't there. And without getting there, success was going to be really tough. And so if I had to do it over again, ironically, I'd spend just enough to make sure we kept ourselves engaged with Japanese companies and Japanese developers for what they wanted to do in the West, um, but probably spend a little bit less time on it because it distracted us from things where we actually had an opportunity to make progress. Right. Um, really tough. 360 was much better. Um, still challenged, but much better. Yeah. And we had better assets, a better team, better engagement, more credibility. Um, the, the senior leadership in the Japanese game companies turned over a bit at that point, and you had a few younger people leading companies who were a little bit more Western in their thought. That made it a little yeah, easier Final for us. Fantasy came to the Final Fantasy came to the product. And we, you know, so there were, 360 was better, but Xbox, you know, it's just really hard. I always tell people, it's the only market I've ever been in where we had negative market share. <laughs> we were taking more in returns than we were selling into the wow. market. That's really uh, hard. For the 360. Right. Can you tell me what, I'm just, this is purely indulge my own curiosity. What sure. were some of the other finalists for the name? Because 360 at the time was kind of a weird name. Yeah, it's I mean, a good it seems question. very normal now, but do you remember what some of the finalists for the name of that you system You know, were? I, I'll, I'll remember, I'm going to say, Peter, if Peter Moore were here, um, or next time you see him, he will remember the long list. He'll all remember right. all I'll 10 of them. I'll ask him for he's, sure. He's wonderful about this guy, and he was running the, the marketing team at the time. I'm going to, certainly Xbox Three was actually on the list because skipping two. Well, you got to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> and just you got to you got to get to you got you don't want to be Xbox Two compared to PlayStation Three. We actually talked about that, right? Right. You don't want to feel like you're a, a generation behind. So you know why not skip? Look, Windows 
you know, Windows Office skipped numbers. We, Windows skipped nine. There is no, no Windows nine. No Windows nine. Microsoft has a long history <laughs> of skipping numbers. So that's the one I remember. And you know, we had a naming agency yeah. for both the original Xbox and for 360. And in the original case, they didn't come back with anything that was better than what we were using. You yeah, paid them a bunch of money for nothing. For, well, <laughs> you, you covered the landscape, and they did a bunch of trademark searches for us, which yeah, is yeah. quite helpful. Um, for 360, um, it just you know it was the best of the names, and it felt right. The truth is, on this naming stuff, yeah, it doesn't matter that much. Doesn't matter that much. I mean, if you can name something the Wii and sell it in the United States and in Europe and be very successful with it. You know, how important can the name actually be, right? When that name came out, everybody laughed. They made all yeah. the appropriate jokes. But when you type it into Google, that's the only thing that comes up, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And, and by the way, <laughs> or Bing, a very, no, that's okay. it's a very <laughs> successful product. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, in the end, we probably spent too much time on naming. Interesting. Ultimately. All right. And, and by the way, if you can go back to Xbox One, you know, all rules are broken, right? That's true. Right. It's, it's, it's uh, all bets are off for whatever the next the next, next version. Who knows is. what they're going to call that? Uh, so the 360 was, by your own admission, you don't publish the actual. You keep the 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 internal projections confidential, sure. but you do say in the book that the 360 beat your even your like wildest internal expectations. Not even in the same time zone. Uh, <laughs> You know, you you are clear in the book that you had you felt good that you had a strong plan and you executed it well, but were you guys shocked at Sony's moves with PS3? The whole you know coming out a year later, the 599 thing. The year later didn't surprise us. I mean, we knew. Yeah, you wanted to be first. We wanted to be first. Well, we wanted to make sure originally when we, remember we chose this date in 2002, yeah. so at the time you don't know what they're going to do. We just said. You know, it's a five or six year cycle. This is when they launch. So the earliest they're going to launch is 2005. We have to be there when they launch that. Right. Worst case, we have to be at the same time. So that's what got us to 2005. As we got closer, we weren't surprised it was going to be 2006. Just because of the complexity of the cell processor and what they were trying to accomplish. Yeah. So that part didn't surprise us at all. I will tell you the single moment when I knew we had real upside was when they announced the pricing at E3. I mean, literally. Was that, that was a shock to you? Oh, you had no, total shock. No idea? Total shock. We knew their product, their, their bill of materials was going to be too expensive, but we thought they'd suck it up. Yeah. And we're literally, you know, they wouldn't let it, the senior, most of us into the room for the presentation. That's just the way E3 yeah, it's, works. It's, it's fine. Business. It's fine. So we're watching it on some, and again, things weren't live broadcast then, old technology. So we're watching on some feed. I don't even yeah, know what whatever. feed it was, but it was really bad, and we couldn't tell. And so he, Kaz said the price. And the, uh, the room we were in went silent. And, and I said, did he really say what I think he said? And so we started contacting people who were in the room to get confirmation that the price was actually the price he'd actually said. Yeah. And when we confirmed that, you know, I said absolutely in my mind, and many of us said out loud, oh, this, this could be really fun. Did you just say that we? Did you just think? Did you think you won in that moment? No, or? you never think you win when yeah. you have twenty percent market share and they have sixty. <laughs> well, you never yeah. think you've won, right? That's the kiss of death. But I did say, okay, we got a real chance. There's real upside here. Yeah. If we push hard, we can really make a difference. Uh, you say in the book, uh, quote, Xbox Live is by far the most important element in the Xbox success story. Mm. What did Live do for the? the present and future of the Xbox business at that time? Well, I think the first thing it did is it was the one of the major places where we provided real innovation and new ideas to the industry. I mean, people forget in 2002, MySpace didn't exist. Right. 
Forget Facebook. MySpace didn't exist. Broadband was in its infancy. Well, broadband's in its infancy. So the idea that you're going to have a social network of people engaging in an activity online on a regular basis is marginally crazy. And so it really brought, yeah, there'd been online gaming before. If you knew somebody's IP address, you could go, you could go meet with them. Right. But this was, a, was a, a revolutionary idea, that we were going to have a social community-based gaming experience online. So first of all, there's an innovation point that I think is really, really important. Um, the second thing is it changed the business model completely. So now we're not just dependent on selling games. We have a subscription revenue. We have advertising revenue. We have retail revenue. And all of those things have continued to grow and become more important. Every yeah. year it got more important. And so now you have a sustainable business that isn't reliant on hardware and first-party games. The, the Razor, Razor Blade. Well, now you have a Razor, <laughs> some Razor Blades, and then just another business. A, a box of cash. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, just it, another business. It fills itself. Just another business. And, you know, it, it has real cost. It takes real work. Yeah, of course. It's not cheap. But um, it's sustainable. And, by the way, it carries from console to console. Which had Which never is been done before. Super powerful. Yeah. So that to, that to me is what, and you know, if you look at their business today, and you know, they don't disclose all the numbers, but my guess is that Xbox Live is the most important part of the business today. Yeah, because to be clear, if you, uh, so, Robbie, you, you left uh, prior to the yeah prior to the Xbox One even. Sort yeah, of I think I, into focus. I think I was a I advised them about a week before I left at their first exploratory meeting. Yeah. So. Um, not a lot of uh, contact with that project. So for the 360, because uh, you were, you had to work on a lot of different products sure. over the course of your time at Microsoft. We see a couple of them on the wall yeah, here. Yeah, that Zoom thing. That's, <laughs> that's, that's good. Is, is the 360 the proudest achievement in your career product-wise? Um, there'd really be two, Yeah. honestly. I played a different role in the creation of Office. Um, I was a, uh, first a mid-level and then eventually a senior person in marketing for Office. And, you know, we took a product that had 5% market share and took it to, what, 90% market share over some period of time. Uh, and there's a bunch of people who deserve most of the credit for that, but playing a role in it and seeing it happen to yeah. me was really pretty amazing. Um, and then, you know, 360 and the Xbox experience itself um, certainly are right there with that. Um, there's other products that I was actually quite proud of, but not because of their commercial success. I mean, even Zune... From a thought leadership perspective, uh, you know, if you think about Zune, the Zune music surface is Spotify five years before Spotify. That's fair. And, and yeah. so I'm proud of that. Yeah, of and course. It's Jay, one of Jay's, uh, another one of Jay's creations. Now, the business I'm not proud of, we, we messed it up. That happens. Uh, you mentioned in the book that the, there was, uh, for years, there was this sort of, these rumors about an ex-boy handheld. <laughs> right. You mentioned in the book, uh, it was, you decided against it. Right. You actually, so you do mention that you decided against it. How far did any of the proposals get? Is oh, there, is there a, a, no, a prototype of it? Is no, there a shell somewhere? No, there's no, I don't, I don't recall there ever being a prototype. We had, there were drawings. Yeah. Oh, there were definitely drawings. And there were, you know, how you would give it give me work? those? Yeah, I'd I don't like have, I don't have, the funny thing is, <laughs> you know, I didn't save very much stuff. It's really kind of disappointing. When I went, when I think about the book, I said, well, maybe I should put a bunch of pictures in it. And I didn't have as many pictures as I thought I did. I didn't have as much material as I thought. But um, X-Boy was, multiple times came as a project. And it wasn't always called X-Boy, it was X-something, but it was a handheld gaming device. Yeah. And the theory was, we got to play in that part of the ecosystem. And we didn't do it uh, because we just couldn't focus. They just did not have the bandwidth. That's what you talk about in the book, is it would have just detracted from the 360. And, and, and Xbox and 360 were so challenged at that time. 
So um, it, for us, it was a focus issue. Now, as it turned out strategically, it was a smart decision, but that's somewhat accidental. The real thing was, gosh, that's interesting, but we just can't do it. And, and, and do you th it seems like history has proven your uh, decision correct that, you know, of course, with smartphones now, the, the handheld market would have been... Well, that's why I say, I think history proved me correct in one case and lucky in another. Correct in the sense that focusing on 360 was absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah. Lucky in the sense that that forced me to make a decision that turned out to be right because smartphones took over that marketplace. And I don't, I would not claim, and I don't know that there was anybody on the team that would claim to say, oh, we knew smartphones were coming, therefore right. we didn't do it. Um, you know, sometimes you do things for the right reason and it ends up being a really good decision. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, 399 was turned out to be such a sweet spot right. for the for the Xbox 360 price. Everybody, all the enthusiast gamers were willing to pay it, and uh, it just worked out. And Sony, of course, suffered at 599 dollars, at least certainly in the early going, until they could drive their price down. Were you surprised then when the Xbox One launched at 499? Yeah. So the interesting thing, the interesting thing about talk about 399 just for a minute. Yeah. That was controversial even within Microsoft. Because remember, that was the first console at 399 True. And so what we did was this dual SKU strategy. People forget. Right. We had a console at 299 and, yeah. and the premium. And so we sort of covered our bases both ways. Nobody and, wanted the cheaper one, though. Well, without, without actually, sales, sales were higher than you'd think. Okay. There were, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but 30, 35, 40 I guess just in the, in the enthusiast community, nobody. Correct. All yeah. the hardcore gamers bought the 399 yeah. version, but a lot of families bought the 299 version. And so that was a nice mix. So what surprised me at, with the Xbox One, 499 certainly surprised me, but what really surprised me is they chose just 499. And I know the reason for that is they wanted to have Connect in every, every right. box. Um, but it sort of didn't leave them much of a safety net. And for us, 299 was a safety net on what we considered to be a risky bet at 399 What do you think of the console landscape now? You know, you've been, you've been out of the, you've been retired for going on six years right. now. You know, what do you think of the Xbox One, the PS4, the Wii U, the rumors, uh, the Nintendo NX, the rumors of PlayStation 4.5? What do you think of the landscape now? Well, to me, the interesting thing about the gaming landscape generally, even beyond consoles, is it's never been a bigger or better business. It's now um, a rich, rich form of entertainment. You've got eSports. You have TV shows. Yeah. You have um, um, mobile games, PC games, Xbox games, online universes. It's, it's, such, it's so cool to see the interesting, and this is going to sound funny but to see it have grown up into such a crazy great place so that to me is the first thing it's really yeah. exciting the second thing is people think consoles are a smaller part of the business and mathematically as a percentage that's true but the console market's never been bigger right playstation 4 and xbox 360 have sold more units to date than any previous generation of consoles at this stage of life cycle yeah and so you kind of look at that and you say wow so smaller part of the larger ecosystem but a big growing business that's really cool. And, um, you know, to me, it just tells you that the, this industry is driven by creativity. And in the creative space, you just don't know what's going to happen next. And the, and the things that do come from the creative side of the house uh, are what drive the industry. Uh, would you have, if, if you were still running the Xbox business, would you have handled the Xbox One any differently? Nah, I, it's a really unfair question. It's a really unfair question. With no I, don't, I don't mean any disrespect no, to you or to anybody in no, there. It was, it's, no, it it's was, just interesting because you did run the business, so I'm curious, you know. Well, the thing I hope, 
there, there were some things that they did that I think were, they tried to do new things and they didn't work out. Peace. We can decide those were the right things or the wrong things, but they didn't work out. Okay. Yeah. There were some things that happened that I think we had learned lessons before that m maybe they should have uh, should have already learned. And I think that's not saying something that's not blindingly obvious, I suppose. Um, so I'd hope I would have remembered those lessons, but you don't know. I think the thing for, for people who are watching this to really understand, when you're in the crucible, it's all different, right? There's no objectivity, right? You are, you've been close to a project for three or four years. It you is your life. And it is your life. You set out with an objective. It's like, it's like a game that ships and people say, well, that was a bad game. Why'd you ship it? And the answer is, no, I was close to the game. There are things I loved about the game. I thought we were doing the right thing. I thought it could work. Yeah. I mean, nobody ships something that they think is abject bad. Uh, so, so that's what happens. And you get close, and it's hard to pull back. Look, first version of the Xbox, I know that for in spades. We made so many bad decisions. And I made so many bad decisions. So I, I, I try really hard to give the team some grace on that point because I think it's just, it's just a difficult challenge launching a console. Now, uh, switch gears a little bit. Sure. You know, the whole second half of your book is about uh, civic responsibility and your, your call to, to the civic life. You claim to not have any plans to run for office. You're very <laughs> right. clear. But despite the fact uh, this, this is very, very clearly important to you, and you, know, you mentioned earlier and you mentioned in the book your childhood dream of being a U.S. senator. Yeah. Not a lot of kids, I think, daydream about being... <laughs> A U.S. senator. I, I, I was geeky in my own uh, way. I wasn't a gamer, but I was geeky in my own way. But now, now hear me for a second. Uh, you're from, uh, you live in Medina, I believe. Medina, yeah. Is it Medina Mayor, Robbie Bach. That's got a <laughs> ring to it, right? I mean, because uh, you know, you're a young guy. you got plenty of time. It seems like, you know, why not pursue that path if, if that's what you're passionate about? And you have this, you, you are a retired guy with the choice of what you want to do with your, your life. Yeah. But that's the key point, um, is I have choice. And what I've chosen is that I, I've chosen this path called civic engineering. And I think my second act, my second job and my purpose and second purpose in life is to empower other people to get engaged civically. So I really am of an evangelist. I want to provide tools and techniques and ways for people to think about things. That's why I blog so much. If you follow me on LinkedIn or on Twitter, on Facebook, you know, I write a blog probably every 10 days. Sometimes it's about business, sometimes it's about civics. I'm trying to get the masses of people involved. If you run for office, you now have a different North Star. You have instantly changed yourself from being somebody who, whose goal in life is to get everybody involved in civics yeah. to getting people to vote for you. True. And so that changes the dynamic quite dramatically. And so I, you know, I've consciously chosen to say, you know, like running for office isn't what I want to do because I want to have bigger impact than running for office could have. Now it's that's actually that actually makes me sad hearing you say that. The <laughs> fact that not and this is the fact that you believe you genuinely believe that you can affect more change by not being in politics. Isn't the whole point of, of being a politician is supposed to help affect change for your community? Well, it's I, unfortunate that no, that, but that no, but remember, it goes back to individual skill sets, right? So I think there are people who are uniquely qualified to do this. Yeah, and 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 you know, there's some unfortunately who get elected who are uniquely unqualified to do it. So that's a whole separate point. But I think there are people for whom it is a great calling, and for whom uh, the lifestyle and the challenge and the things you have to do to be successful where it makes sense and it fits in with what they want to accomplish. So 
Um, instead, I think of it as, um, no, I'm empowering the broader ecosystem. The other thing I will tell you is politicians aren't the only ones who get to drive change. And I would actually tell you that I'm more hopeful about the change that gets driven by nonprofits and by businesses right. than I am about the change that's going to get driven from Washington, D.C. Right. If like, you, like, a, like, a, like, what like what Elon Musk is doing with a SpaceX or a Tesla, for instance. Exactly. Or, or what uh, Mark Zuckerberg has decided to do. Remember, he, has a non, he, has, he doesn't even have a nonprofit. Right? He has a foundation yeah. that has for-profit and nonprofit purposes. And he wants to drive social change. Bill and Melinda have chosen a way to drive social change. Very good, yeah. And Very so good. for me, the best situation is you get a local problem. Uh, in the book, in the book, I talk about teen pregnancy in the city of Milwaukee, my hometown. And you get businesses, you get government leaders, and you get nonprofits to work together. That's how you drive change. And that's where my life is focused, is on figuring out how to help people to do make that kind of change happen. Now, uh, you know, we, we don't like to get into politics on IGN. We're about games. We're, you know, for everybody. You but, need a game about this but, election. Trust on, me, but, this, this election well, will make exists. a great video that, game. That, that's, I think that's already happened. But uh, in the book, you admit it's an extreme measure, but you actually propose forming a new centrist political party. Do you, sure. think, do you think that society's frustration with our elected leaders on both sides uh, is such that a, a, a third, a legit third party is a realistic possibility? Yeah, I do. I really do. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of institutional infrastructure that works against it, that makes it tough. But I, I do believe, and certainly hope, that when people come down to actually voting, they're going to realize that the extremes are bad. And that um, the middle part of the, of the ecosystem, the middle part of political thought, the middle part of governing, is where the action is. Yeah. And finding ways to reach compromise, where compromise isn't conceding. Compromising is moving the ball forward. Yes. And I believe that will happen. Now, do I think, look, the Republican Party basically is in shambles right now. Right? Maybe it'll come back and be the Republican Party of old, but right now you have a very conservative wing of the Republican Party, you have a traditional wing of the Republican Party, and then you have the Donald Trump wing of the Republican Party, which has nothing to do with being Republican. You know, how's that going to get reshaped? You know, I think it's quite realistic to think there are some Democrats and Republicans who could get together in the centrist part of the world and say, hey, we have more in common than we have with the rest of our party. And I think it would be a powerful thing to happen. Actually, having two parties is an unnatural and probably not healthy circumstance. A uh, couple more questions for sure. you before I let you go. Sure. Because uh, you, ha you have actual world change to affect, and I'm just going to go write about <laughs> video games after this. No, I really do thank you for coming in. This has been, this has been a blast so far uh, for having having, for me, gotten to cover Xbox for so many years to now be Well, we were laughing about that. We've known each other for so long, and I'm not sure, you know, it's not like we've, we've, we've met a lot, yeah, but they, we've they, been involved in the same business for a long time. They keep guys like me away from, from uh, guys like you. They don't, they don't want me asking too many questions. I think it, in fact, was the reverse. I think they kept me away from the guys who knew games. But, uh, you know, most people don't get to retire in life sure. at 49, uh, not successfully, Anyway, so, so what, what are your big goals for the rest of your life? You've got, you've got the whole second half of your life ahead of you. Well, and it's, it's funny you say that because I think I retired from Microsoft. I didn't retire from work. <laughs> and so I, I really do, I, you know, I think of my North Star. You know, my book, I talk about purpose. Yeah. And, you know, the one sentence that describes what you want to do. And my purpose in what I do is empowering and informing an army of civic engineers. And, you know, that's a big statement, 
right? So that could be 30 years of work. Right. And I might not even succeed, but that's what I'm about. And it's why I do the things I do in the nonprofit space. It's why I do the consulting work I do in the civic space. Um, even the business work I do um, has elements of that uh, has elements of that in it. And so that's where I'm at. I do uh, still doing a lot of blogging and writing. I'll probably write another book. I do a lot of public speaking on civic and business issues. Um, I'm on now five boards, uh, four of which are nonprofit boards, one of which is a for-profit board, Sonos. Um, and I'm a small business owner with a business partner of mine. And so I'm far from retired, and all of those things have a common element of this North Star of civic engineering and getting people engaged. So uh, real quickly, you, know, you mentioned four nonprofits. Do you want to mention them in some ways that maybe people can get involved? Yeah, absolutely. The, the biggest nonprofit I'm involved with is Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And there's 1,100 Boys and Girls Club organizations, 4,000 clubhouses in the country. There's one near you. Um, they, do, they serve 4 million kids. And there's another 15 million that aren't getting served who need help. 25% um, of our high school students aren't going to graduate. It's a tragedy. And so, and that's what Boys and Girls Club's about. It's about taking kids from the time they're five or six and getting them successfully through high school with a path to the future. Um, so for me, uh, you know, that's a, a deep passion. I've been a local board for almost 20 years, national board for 10 years. So that's really important. Second one I'm on just real quickly is Year Up, which is Y-E-A-R Up. And Year Up is this amazing job training organization, which sort of picks up where Boys and Girls Club lets off, yeah. takes kids who have GEDs or high school education, gives them six months of IT training, Gives them a six-month internship and then helps them find a job. That's great. And it's an amazing organization. Microsoft's very involved in that as well. Um, and then I'm, I'm a personal passion, U.S. Olympic Committee. And I'm, I'm a huge sports fan, giant sports fan. I played You going to Rio? I am going to Rio. Nice. I am going to Rio. I'm a, a, very, a big competitive sports fan. My brothers and I were all Division I athletes and love sports. So that's sort of a personal passion. But also a nonprofit that gets no government money. And so we have to raise the money to send Team USA every place it goes. Yeah. Is that the fourth one? And the fourth one is the second Boys and Girls Club board because I'm local and Got national. It. Got it. Uh, well, I'll ask you one last Xbox question before I let you go. I'm sure. just curious. When you look out in the world and you see Xbox, you see the brand on billboards, <laughs> sure. T-shirts, in stores, on websites, uh, how does it make you feel that, you know, that, that all these years later it's, it's this cultural force? Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. I have two emotions, and they both they kind of compete with each other. One is, you know, I think instantly of the team. I think of the people who made that happen. And while I was, quote-unquote, chief Xbox officer and nominally the leader of the team, that logo, starting with that one, now with the new logo, is everywhere because of the work some very passionate people did. And I'm, I, I loved that team. And I, I keep, keep in touch with them. It's really powerful stuff. And I, I give them great credit. And then in a personal moment, I have some personal pride too. Sure. And I feel like there's some part of me that went with that work and that contributed to it in some, some small way. And so it's this combination of humility in front of the team, because I think they did the work, and some personal pride. And that's a, it's an interesting combination. And, uh, it's a human combination. It is a human combination. And I, I think it's... Um, it, you know, it's cool to see something like that built. When you can look, it's different between now I'm a consultant than I was a builder. And when you build something, um, it's always a little bit your baby. 
Well, Robbie Bach, the book is Xbox Revisited. I'll go to center camera here for this. Hopefully we can get a good look at it. Uh, the man is Robbie Bach, the original chief Xbox officer. You can get this book. Is it in bookstores or most of the stores? It is. You can, get, you can get it. If you get it on my site, more money goes to charity. Okay. But you can also buy it on Amazon. There's Kindle versions. You can buy it in any bookstore. All right. Get it where it's convenient for you. RobbieBach.com. Again, he was the original chief Xbox officer. Robbie, thank you so much for coming in, and best of luck with the book and uh, with your with all your nonprofit efforts. Thanks a lot, Brian. Enjoyed being here.